As we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, I hope that you reflected carefully on the words that we sang in those last two hymns as they spoke so directly to the subject at hand, and that is our justification before a holy, just, and righteous God. If he should mark iniquities, no man can stand. He has a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels and all men that stand in their righteousness, or should we say their filth, before him. We sang, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. That's all we have to claim. We don't have to claim that we have faith, or that our belief is going to put us in some good standing before God. Our claim is that Jesus Christ has done it all. When the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, Abraham's faith did not add to his reproductive power, nor did it add to Sarah's reproductive power. It did not increase either one at all whatsoever. It was not a synergistic effort between God, Abraham, and Sarah in order to make Abraham the father of many nations. It was a promise of God by his power that what he had promised I think it tells me in Romans chapter 4, he is able also to perform. Abraham's faith just identified him as a righteous man, and he laid claim to the promise that was going to be fulfilled in his life. And God led him all the way to that because he was already a man of faith before Genesis 15 and verse 6. We have a wonderful passage of Scripture here before us, and it teaches us free salvation by the justification through God's grace that's in the redemption of Christ Jesus our Lord. We sang in the song prior to the last one that we stand on Christ our solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Every sacramental plan of salvation is sinking sand. Because it will not help you stand up in that great day of judgment. Every Arminian synergistic combination of man cooperating with God, is sinking sand. Every idea that God loved all men and Jesus Christ died for all men and the Holy Spirit is trying to save all men is sinking sand. Because if that's the case, and the majority of mankind ends up in hell, what good is the love of God, the death of Christ, or the work of the Spirit? It is vain. And the boasting that will be done in heaven will not be of what Jesus Christ has done. That boasting will be taking place in hell. Because that form of Jesus Christ's deliverance was applied as well to those in hell as those in heaven. The boasting in heaven will be that a man or a woman is there because they synergistically, cooperatively work together with God for the salvation of their soul and how thankful they are that they exercised faith and invited Jesus into their heart in order to be saved. Not. I trow not. Jesus Christ would say. All other ground is sinking sand except the one we're to look at. Faith is something God works in you. It is only an evidence of the righteous work of God in you. It is only a proof that you are righteous. It is not a condition, nor an instrument, nor a means, other than for the sanity of your mind, the assurance of your soul, and the evidence to others that you're a child of God. It's all the work of God from beginning to end, whether it's election and eternity, 
justification on Calvary, regeneration at some point in your life, or eternal glorification in the day to come. Conversion is our lifelong process of conforming our lives to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, showing His work through us that we can know that we have eternal life. The Bible says everything from faith to good works is the evidence of eternal life. It's not faith only. Faith only can save no one. James chapter 2, verse 14. Read it sometime. The devils have so much faith, they tremble at the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they shall stand before Him. But that is not good enough. We come to Romans chapter 3 and the 24th verse. And by God's grace, we want to proceed as far as we can toward the end of this chapter that we may understand these wonderful words. Brethren, two things are yet to happen in your life. You thought that, in the, that a test that you were going to have in the sixth grade was hard. You thought that making the freshman football team was difficult. You thought that getting your driver's license was hard. You thought that going to meet some girl's daddy was a difficult task. There's two tasks coming, one of which is to die, which is by far the easiest. It is a picnic compared to the one after that. And the one after that is to stand before a holy, just, righteous, terrible, dreadful God that cannot and will not acquit or clear the guilty. We shall all stand before Him. We shall give an account of our lives. Every thought that we have had passed through our brains, every word that has escaped our lips, everything our hands and feet have done, and everything our thoughts, words, and hands and feet have not done that they should have done. We shall give an account of our lives. The books shall be opened. All of our works shall be read. And whoever is not found written in the Lamb's book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. What names are in the Lamb's book of life? The names that God chose in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. Ephesians 1, four, 2 Timothy 1.9, Revelation 13.8, and Revelation 17.8. The names were written there from the foundation of the world. There is no new name being written down in glory as you exercise faith. Faith is for you to lay hold of the hope of righteousness. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5 before I, I get started. I am greatly burdened that we must waste so much mental effort and so much time and so much preaching to undo the heresies and the gimmicks of the Arminians that populate the Christian world today. It nauseates me. This passage is ours. They have no right to it. They go in and look for sound bites. They wouldn't know the difference between a Jewish legalist and a Toyota Corolla. They just look for sound bites. And because they find the word faith in Romans chapter 3, why do you think it's the Romans road? Why don't they try the Ephesians road? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It doesn't serve their synergistic ideas. So they go to Romans where Paul is dealing with something different in opposing Jewish legalism. Brethren, I, I have to make the point clear, but I am sick and tired of having to undo the garbage that we have been taught. And I do not like to appear defensive when I'm preaching because of all the errors that have been done. And it makes me appear that I have to work so hard when I don't have to work hard at all. These are our verses and they're our words. Amen. Faith is an evidence of eternal life. 
It's not a condition or an instrument nor a means of it. The only faith that is a condition, an instrument, and a means of it is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He had more faith than all men put together in obeying the Lord, in in obeying God His Father and dying on the cross of Calvary and committing His soul into the hands of Him who He knew had forsaken Him. Try that on for size sometime. That's my Lord Jesus Christ. He had faith like no other. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now that is describing a righteousness that is yet to come upon us. We're waiting for something. Just like the waiting in Romans chapter 8. We're waiting for the adoption. To wit, the redemption of our bodies from the grave. Faith is the vehicle by which we lay hold of the promises of God and wait for the hope of righteousness that's coming. There is a righteousness that we have now by the declaration of these words in print. The declaration of these words in print, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The declaration of these words in print, Whoso shall believeth in his heart that God hath raised him from the dead and shall confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Faith is the evidence that we are the elect of God. God did not elect us because of our faith. God elected us because of the good pleasure of His will that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But we wait for another form of righteousness. You can look into the Bible and if you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son and that God sent Him to be the Savior of His elect and that He will lose none of them, if you believe the gospel record that he was buried and rose again the third day, you are saved. You shall be saved. You are saved because you're elect, justified, and regenerated, or you wouldn't believe. You shall be saved because there is yet coming this day of declaration of righteousness. That is the future tense. We do not believe in order to be born again. We do not believe in order to be justified in the sight of God. The elect are already justified in the sight of God. They've been justified in the sight of God by His faith in the blood of Christ and His forbearance from the foundation of the world. Praise His great and glorious name. I'm so sick of having to undo the horrible doctrine that blasphemes Christ that is taught in almost all other pulpits. Jesus Christ did not try to save anyone. God did not try to love or save anyone. The Holy Spirit has not tried to regenerate anyone. Everyone the Holy Spirit has tried to regenerate, I can tell you something, they are born again children of God. Everyone the Lord Jesus Christ died for, He will surely raise up again in the last day because He said so. John 6 and verse 38. All the Father giveth me, I will raise up in the last day. None of them shall be lost. I will lose none of them. This is what we believe. But there is coming a day, brethren, that it should be the most important concern of our hearts. But with the salve of the gospel, we do not have to be wounded by our sins except to know that Jesus Christ has paid for them and there is a formal declaration of righteousness yet to come in the great day of judgment when God will sit on His throne and declare formally to the universe that we are righteous through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that it's right here in this verse. 
For we, through the Spirit, if it wasn't for the Spirit of God, you wouldn't have faith or hope. For we, through the Spirit, do wait. It's something we don't have yet. We're not justified yet in this respect. We wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. There's where faith comes in. Faith gives us the hope that there is righteousness that shall be declared for us through Jesus Christ, perfect substitutionary work on our behalf. How do you know that that's going to be declared for you? I just gave you some of the verses. Do you want some more? Whosoever believeth on him shall not be confounded. Are you fearful of being confounded in that great day of standing before Almighty God and being confounded that you had thought you had eternal life, but all of a sudden you're told that you don't? Whosoever believeth on him shall not be confounded. Impossible. Why are you listening to the devil? That is not the Holy Spirit, and that is not your conscience telling you that. It is the devil. Because the devil will be confounded world without end. Because he'll be cast into the lake of fire and his torment will ascend up into the presence of God forever. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The relationship of faith to justification, it is an evidence of it. It is not a condition for it other than Jesus Christ's faith and his obedience. Our obedience. The Bible says the same thing about obedience that it does about faith. Hebrews chapter 5, don't turn there, just listen to these words. We're at Romans chapter 3, but I'm not done yet. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. This is, this is an introduction to the introduction, but I still know that there's a clock moving on me. Hebrews 5, 9, and Jesus Christ being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. Now I thought of Romans 5, 19 that I opened the assembly with an hour ago, that it's by the obedience of one that many shall be made righteous. Why in the world does it say in Hebrews 5.9 that he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him? And trust me, if you ever run in to a follower of Alexander Campbell, they know Hebrews 5.9. Because they want you to obey by being baptized by one of their pseudo-ministers, preachers, and put into one of their churches. The obedience of us is the evidence that Jesus Christ was obedient for us. Our faith is the evidence That Jesus Christ had faith for us. Faith is the evidence of eternal life. When you go to 1 John chapters 3, 4, and 5 and you read that righteousness, love, and faith are all considered equals as being evidence of eternal life, you should understand all these things. This is very simple. We are not cooperating with God. The work of Jesus Christ was never offered to us. Jesus Christ has not offered His blood to us. He offered it to God, and God had faith in that blood from the everlasting covenant all the way until Jesus cried, it is finished. He had to. How would he have ever let Elijah into heaven? How would Enoch have ever walked with God, except through the faith of God in the coming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in God's forbearance of sins for 4,000 years? Do you understand that? We don't add to it. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. That's why we're here this morning. I'm preaching to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God a little bit more. So that our faith and our confidence 
coming toward the day of our death and the day of standing before God will grow and grow until we can say with Paul, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What had Paul committed unto God? The safekeeping of his soul. Have you committed the safekeeping of your soul unto a faithful creator and a faithful savior who will not lose one of them? This is our doctrine of salvation. All other ground is sinking sand. There is no rock to stand on if it's your faith that makes the difference between heaven and hell. The rock that makes the difference between heaven and hell is the rock Christ Jesus. Praise His glorious name. God loved the elect with an everlasting love, and it is impossible to be separated from His love, according to Romans chapter 8 and the last five or six verses. How in the world can God love all mankind and then separate Himself from the vast majority of them? Please tell me how that is possible. What a travesty on Scripture. What a ridiculous whore they make out of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That He casts His love abroad upon all men and saves very few of them. That He's the most frustrated lover in the history of the universe. My God is not frustrated in any aspect of the redemption that He's provided for His elect. Brethren, we deserve to die. When the books are open, they're horrible in what they're going to bring out and expose about your thoughts, words, and deeds, and my thoughts, words, and deeds, and the lack of the good things we should have done for all that God has done for us naturally and spiritually. We are doomed in that day, us filthy wretches, condemned and damned before a holy, just, and terrible God. But I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that there is redemption that's been secured and purchased and applied to my account. Please have mercy upon me. As I, It's not your fault. It's my fault. I am so sick of all that is being preached today that it takes away the glory and splendor of these verses that are ours. All we have to do is believe from our standpoint. It adds nothing to the work of Christ. It adds nothing to the purpose of God. It adds nothing to the power of the Holy Ghost. Our faith is the way that we lay hold of it. And that faith by itself doesn't lay hold of anything. Because you've got to add to that faith works. James would write in James 2.14, can faith save them? That's a rhetorical question. Are you smart enough to figure out the answer? Is it negative or positive? Can faith save them? Sola fide. Sola fide. Oh yes, Martin Luther, you couldn't even figure out the doctrine of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why should we trust you on the doctrine of justification when you were a Roman Catholic monk? Sola fide, faith only. He hated the book of James. He called it a straw epistle. He questioned its inspiration. He removed it when he could from the New Testament. Sorry, not really. Sola fide. James would say, can faith save him? What's the answer? No way, God forbid. Faith, the devils believe and tremble. That's five verses later. Faith without works is dead. That's a few verses later. You see then how that by works a man is justified. James 2.24 You see then how that by works a woman is justified. James 2.26 Because both Abraham and Sarah, both Abraham and Rahab, excuse me, are going to be in heaven by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the evidence of their works. So until you've lied, 
to the mayor and policemen of your city at the risk of your life in order to save God's spies, you have no hope of everlasting life. Because you know it's only evidence. Right. It's only evidence. Romans chapter 3 verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 3.24. Because it follows Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. He spent from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20 proving that we've all sinned. He took care of us Gentiles and tied us up nice and neatly. Damned before a holy God as we came to the conclusion of chapter 1. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Right. Terrible. That's us Gentiles. Then he takes care of the Jews from 2.1 to 3.20. And he gets to the end in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 and says that all the world may become guilty before God and every mouth stopped. Our mouths are stopped. We have nothing to say. We cannot excuse ourselves. Jesus Christ will excuse us. Amen. On the grounds, I died for Him. Father, His name is in the book of life. You gave Him to me before the world began in covenant salvation. This is covenant salvation. The Presbyterians don't have a clue about it. This is covenant salvation. You gave him to me before the foundation of the world to come into this world and die for, and I died for him. I saw my seed, and he was among my seed when I was on the cross. Father, you know what Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says of me. It is by your righteous servant's knowledge that you shall justify many. And here I am. I knew your will for my life, and I kept it. And I knew that this man was mine, and I died for him. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Amen. I wish I knew how to tell you about it. But I don't. But there's another preacher that I hope will. And that's the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Father in heaven, send thy spirit and teach every one of our hearts and our minds, our souls, and our spirits to know the love of Christ. The height, the depth, the length, the breadth of it. Until we are filled with the knowledge of God to the extent that we are filled with all the fullness of Thee. According to Your promise, I bow my knee to the God of heaven, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that you will do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Is that a scriptural prayer? What testament is it found in? What book of the new? Ephesians. What chapter? Yes, life is good. Thank you, Lord. Ephesians chapter 3. Go read it, verses 14 through 19. When you read the words... Because He is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think, it's not talking about giving you a Buick when you prayed for a Chevy. It's talking about God being able to fill you with all the fullness of God according to the dimensions of the love of Christ for your soul till you are filled with Him. And we are not filled yet. 
If you think we've arrived, we have some serious problems in understanding Scripture and our own souls. The Lord can fill us more, and we want Him to. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified. Being justified is a passive voice, verbal phrase, meaning someone else is doing the justifying. And it's God Almighty. You will never justify yourself before God. God is going to justify you. God is going to declare you righteous, though you're a sinner. God's going to declare you guiltless, though you're guilty. God's going to declare you perfect in His sight, though you are terribly filthy, wicked, and depraved. Being justified freely by His grace. Justification is the declaration that someone is righteous, though they're guilty. To justify someone is to declare that the sins that they were guilty for have been taken away, paid for, and they are no longer responsible for them. The simple expression that many have used, which is only half true, is that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Now to stand before God as just as if I'd never sinned would be nice. But I want more. I'm not content with that because the Bible tells me not to be content with that. That is inadequate. That is theological rationing. And we don't ration the grace of God around here. We want all of it. Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned And just as if I had lived as perfectly as Jesus Christ. It's a two-sided coin. The God of heaven gives us both. I don't want to be merely innocent before the God of heaven. I want to stand in the righteousness of the saints, which is the righteousness of Christ before the God of heaven. I don't want to stand a peer of the angels. I want to stand a peer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be a joint heir with Christ, not a joint heir with the angels. You say, show me that in the Bible. Okay, thank you for asking. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What is justification? Let me give you a few verses. Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... That's really saying what men could not do because of their weakness when standing before the law. But it's worded this way. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, it was your flesh, my flesh, and the Jews' flesh that made the law an impossible means of salvation because no man could keep the terms of it, though the terms of it were perfectly just, holy, and righteous, and it is the way to find favor in the sight of God. God's moral law is the way to stand perfect before Him. It's just that no man can keep it. Well, sort of. Do you know my error in that last clause? There's one man that could keep it. And that's what we want to get to. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin, in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I have so many points from those two verses I'd like to chase at one time. Notice it doesn't say, for those who believe here, does it? 
It says, for those who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Have you ever walked after the flesh? Are you outside of Romans 8, 3, and 4? Or if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness practically. So we're back in Romans 8, 3, and 4. We can't really get out of it anyway. Our faith is imperfect, and our walking after the Spirit is imperfect, and our walking after the flesh is all too perfect. Sometimes. Look at the evidence that's given here. You want to make this a condition for eternal life? No, I don't think you do. This is the evidence. So how do we know that we're not condemned? Because we take on a fight in our members who after the law of our mind, we're going to keep the law of God and there's a law in our bodies that keeps the law of sin. It's all about Romans 7. We will come to it before we get to Romans 8. But look at Romans 8, the things that it does say before the last part of verse 4. What the law couldn't do because it was weak through the flesh. The Jews couldn't keep the terms of the law, even though the terms of the law were perfect righteousness before God. If you were to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if you loved your neighbor as yourself and treated him in every way as if you, as you would want to be treated, and if you did not covet anything that he had because you were so happy that he had it, and if you opened your hand wide to all the poor, and I not, that is perfect righteousness. And if you could do those things, you could stand before God. But no man can do those things, and that's why it was weak through the flesh, and it wouldn't work. But God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he sent his son to look as close to us as he possibly could. Born of a woman, laid in a manger, diapered, wrapped in swaddling clothes, grew in wisdom and in stature, just like we do, but without sin. He never sinned against his father in heaven. He never sinned against his stepfather on earth. He never sinned against his mother on earth. He never sinned against his siblings. He never sinned against anything. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ came with a flesh body, suffered temptation in all points like as we are tempted, but he never sinned. He condemned sin in our bodies. Jesus came just like me and was tempted in every temptation that I have ever had. Except every single time he said, how can I commit such a great sin against God? No way am I going to do that. Every place I fell, he said, no way. And he condemned sin in the flesh. A body like mine, a body like yours, he came, had this law presented to him. He knew its terms better than any Pharisee ever did. And he fulfilled it all from the inside out. He fulfilled it in the letter and he fulfilled it in the spirit. And when he, when he had commandments going against each other, he always put them in the right priority. He did everything right for you and for me. And he condemned sin in our fleshly bodies. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. I have kept the law of God perfectly. Honor thy father and thy mother. I have not done so in my flesh or in my own person. But I have done so in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have fulfilled the righteousness of the law. It is impossible for me to be cast out of the sight of God. I am righteous in His sight. It is impossible for Him to pour out His wrath upon me. I am righteous in His sight. That's why verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But notice what it says in the second half of that verse, which is taken out of our modern versions. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, I guess they don't like the redundancy between verses 1 and 4 that the Holy Spirit would repeat itself. Because there might be an emphasis on that, that if we want the assurance of eternal life, if we want the assurance that we're not condemned, then we should walk after the Spirit and do the things the Spirit approves of, bearing the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. That's how you know you have eternal life. And for those of you who've practiced it both ways, walking after the flesh and after the Spirit, you know that when you walk after the flesh, your confidence of eternal life begins to wane. (laughs) Yes, like collapse. And if you're walking after the Spirit, you know that you are filled to a greater and greater degree to the degree that you're walking after the Spirit with confidence that the Lord could come, you could have the big one right now, and you know you're going to be in His presence without a shadow of a doubt. You can assure your hearts before Him. 1 John 3, 1 John 4. You can assure your hearts before Him by walking after the Spirit. What does that mean? It means doing the things the Spirit of God has listed as the things that please God. Galatians chapter 5. You can start at about verse 25. No, no way. That's not early enough. You can start at about verse 15 and read through the end of that fifth chapter of Galatians. Praise the Lord. Look, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. My dear wife knows that I intended to get to verse 31 in this assembly. She now knows that I'm in serious trouble. And I don't care. I did not know how to start this. I'm so upset that we have to undo so much of the Arminian scheme. These are our verses. They have a man-made system of religion that is no better than the fig leaves that Adam and Eve tried to sew together to cover their guilt, shame, and condemnation in the Garden of Eden. It is no better than the lie of the devil that said, Thou shalt not surely die. As Brother Leon's father liked to remind me every time I saw him before he died many years ago. The lie that was told in the Garden of Eden is still being told in pulpits today, he'd tell me, young man. It didn't matter if I was 40 because I was very young compared to him. But he wanted to remind me of that, and it's the absolute truth. And I want you sons to know that about your grandfather. He told me that several times. The lie that was told in the Garden of Eden is still being taught today from pulpits. That we're not surely dead. That Jesus Christ is offering the cure, and the sick man, all he has to do is reach out of bed and take that medicine and pour it down, and he can be all better. But the fact is, We are in a cemetery. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands there and He says, roll away the stone. Yes. And we say it stinks because He's been dead for four days or for 4,000 years. And Jesus says, come forth! That's what what a different doctrine of salvation. I just hate having to undo the other one. And maybe some of you who haven't heard as much of the other one as I had to hear in the first half of my life... You wonder why I do it, but it's because so that when you face those that don't know the doctrine of salvation, you'll have a little bit of mental ammunition prepared to take them on and to resist their false doctrine. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just get the 21st verse. It really gets good at the verse 18 and forward. But, uh, okay, we'll start. We'll, we'll go back to verse 18. Thank you for the encouragement. Second Corinthians 5.18. And all things are of God. I like starting out with verses like that. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. Yes. Hebrews. God. Who at sundry times. But here we have, and all things are of God. Listen, brethren, if you're in verse 17 and you've made things new in your life by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a new creature, he's telling you where that came from. 
in the first part of verse 18, and all things are of God. Don't you think that you've done something big by being a new creature? By coming up out of the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life compared to your former conversation? And all things are of God. What else has he done for us? What's the basis for this great change in lives that should take place? And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. God was our enemy, and we were the enemies of God. We stood on this earth with a depraved nature of rebellion and anger against the God of heaven because he was trying to dictate the terms of our lives, and we were not going to submit to him. He was our enemy because he hates every fool and every worker of iniquity. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5 and verse 5. Him that loveth violence, my soul hateth. Psalm 11, verse 5. God was our enemy. But he sent Jesus Christ in the form of sinful flesh to live our lives over again for us perfectly. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. He's taken away the enmity. God is no longer our enemy. God is our friend and our loving Father because He has adopted us as part of the reconciliation process. And that's a pretty good deal that when you're an enemy with someone, not only do they take away the enmity, but they decide to go ahead and adopt you and make you a son of God and a joint heir, an equal heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the last will and testament of Almighty God that's going to be read in heaven? It's the book sealed with seven seals in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne when it's opened up and all the wealth of God is read. What's going to be left out? Please help me. It's the entire universe and you don't know but a little smidgen about it. The entire universe is going to be bequeathed to you on a line that has the name My Son Jesus of Nazareth. It's going to also have my son, Gerald Evans. Praise the Lord! Is that fantastic? Because we're reconciled to God. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did all the reconciling. Our faith doesn't reconcile us. Our faith shows that we're reconciled. Because God's given us faith through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible has it the other way around. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Those of you who have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, we obtain faith from righteousness. God's righteousness being upon us gives us faith through the process of salvation, including regeneration, when the Holy Spirit gives us a new man that believes the things of God. We are reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. And what does Paul have to do with it? He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit. I like that. The Holy Spirit's going to define a a verse and a word and a, a concept for us. To wit. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's when Jesus Christ came and lived and died for us God was in that transaction completely, and that is the basis of reconciliation. That is reconciliation. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. We were reconciled to God. Jesus went into heaven, according to Hebrews 9, verses 14 and 15, and offered His own blood through the eternal Spirit to God. Jesus never offered His blood to sinners. Jesus offered Himself without spot to God. 
Hebrews 9, 14 and 15, and God accepted it. That's the acceptation that gets us into heaven. It's not that we've accepted Jesus, it's that God's accepted Jesus for you. And here it is described, and what was Paul's role in it? Paul's role was, to wit, he restates 18, and then he explains what it is, the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, and not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us apostles the word of reconciliation. All we do is bring you the news of it. Have you heard the good word? Have you heard the word? Have you heard the news? Have you heard the good news? Have you heard the gospel? Gospel means good news. Gospel is the word of our reconciliation. It's the news. It's the information. It's the announcement. It is the, as Romans 3 would say, the declaration of the fact. The Apostle Paul got to come along and declare the fact that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself and whosoever believeth on Him shall not be confounded because He's showing the evidence that He's a reconciled one. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Because a man that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that man in the great day of judgment shall be saved. That's now not how he got born again. That's not how he was justified. And that wasn't how he was elected. But a man that does those two things shows the evidence of a man that shall be saved in that day. If you have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. If you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in that glorious emblem of His death, burial, and resurrection, you shall be saved. As long as you bring forth some good works to back up that faith and baptism. But that's the, you know, that's the whole New Testament. We can't preach the whole New Testament in every single city. But it's all there. But here, it's the word of reconciliation. You know what Paul, what Paul was an ambassador. I'm an ambassador from the high king of heaven. My word to you this day, for those of you that believe the record that I've given to you from 24 different passages of the Old Testament, there were prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, to you Corinthians, both Jews and proselytes that believe that message, I declare unto you that God is no longer your enemy, but he has reconciled you to himself by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul got to do. And he was excited to do it. And when he was sitting in the back row in some synagogue where he was visiting in some city like Antioch of Pisidia, Acts chapter 13, about verse 23, and they said, Men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Paul got a little tear in his eye. His heart beat a little faster. He got a little smile on his face. He looked at Barnabas and said, Do we? And he went forward and he read some of those Old Testament prophecies and he declared to them, men, you know what he said, men and brethren, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you, please tell him, help me out. To you is the, who just said that? The word of this salvation sent. Does that match up with this? The word of this salvation. I can't bring you salvation. I can only bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. But men and brethren, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. And that's why we've assembled this morning. Brethren, we are hastening toward death. Death is the picnic, though, before the nightmare. But the nightmare has been turned into one glorious day of hope by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is the blessed hope of every believer. The coming of Jesus Christ. We don't have to stand in dread of Him. 
He has paid for it. How can I know that He's paid for my sins? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the one testified by these pages of Scripture, what Matthew describes of Him, Mark, Luke, and John, is the Son of God sent into this world to reconcile God's elect to Himself. Believe it. Let it change your life. Get baptized in His glorious name. I've already been baptized. I wish I could do it again. So do I. I wish I could be baptized every Lord's Day. If He rose on this day, to me it should be called Baptism Day. And I could get baptized. Don't you? If that's how you give God the answer of a good conscience, I'd like to do it every Lord's Day. And if you press me, I'd say every day. Because if that's what God calls as the way to answer Him, I want to do it, and I want to do it. And I want to do it, but He only needs to have it done once. He's content. You say, well, if I was Him, I'd I'd want people to be doing it every year just to make an annual confirmation that they're still believers. Do you get any comfort from the fact that He only needs it once? Any comfort from that to you? Because you know what he knows is going to happen to your faith? He knows that your faith is going to be overthrown at times. Does the Bible tell us that faith can be overthrown? Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18. But see, I don't care about that very much because I like the next verse. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Amen. When you forget if you're his, he doesn't. Amen. I like that. Yes. Amen. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ... Depart from iniquity. That's, that's all in one verse. Do you want to be in the first half of the verse? Then make sure you're in the second half of the verse. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The faith of some is overthrown. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Is he going to die? Is he going to get senile? Is he going to go to sleep? Is there going to be any problem with his memory? Or does he have a book of a covenant? That your name's written in before his throne. He knows them that are his. Verse 20, now then. Based on what I have just described in verses 18 and 19, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God is reconciled, and that is what gets you into heaven. You need to be reconciled so that you can live each day full of joyful thanksgiving and happy confidence that you're saved. Be ye reconciled to God. If God's happy with you, why aren't you happy yet? If God's foundation is sure, why isn't your foundation sure yet? That's what these verses are teaching. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. It's so, it's too simple. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, that's where I was headed is that 21st verse to remind you that he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Think about the trade that took place. This is so this is utterly beyond belief that the God of heaven, the holy, righteous God of heaven would send his perfect and beloved son Jesus Christ, to enter into a transaction with me that I refused. Because I was happily following the prince of the power of the air and the, chil- and the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. I don't need his participation. My son, 
I want you to go to the cross. I've prepared you a body just like Jonathan Crosby's. I want you to go to the cross. I know that you have not sinned, but I'm going to take every filthy, wretched, secret, public, private, messed up, depraved, twisted, rewired sin of that selfish little pig. And I'm, hey, the Bible says worse things than that. And I'm going to put it on you. Will you do this for me? I come to do thy will, O God. Amen. You know what it says in Hebrews 10, by the which will we are sanctified once through the offering of Jesus Christ for us all. Amen. Now, this is just, every, every sin, all of them, how about the ones that were repeated? How about the ones that were repeated three times? How about 300 times? My son, I've given you a body of flesh. He couldn't do it himself. So I have put help on one that is mighty. That's Psalm 89. I happen to like it. I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I want you to take all his sins. I know you haven't sinned. It's going to cause some separation between you and me for a while until you give up your life. Will you give up your life for Jonathan Crosby? And for me, I come to do thy will. He took every single one of my sins. And he said that perfect righteousness that you secured during your life, my son, by keeping every aspect of my law in spirit and in letter, in priority and in passion, I'm going to give it to him. If you by faith will go through with this transaction and you will willingly give up your life to make up for his fear of death, if you will willingly give up your life for him, I will put you a place of preeminence at my right hand and he will be your servant forever. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I come to do thy will, O God. Charlie. This is how we prepare to die. We just need to go over a few of these simple little verses. And it comforts our heart. You know, if we just kept talking about this for a little while, I'd crawl into the box and pull the lid down. This is, and it's how we ought to be thinking about it. He's done it all for us. How do we know that he's done this for us? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. He that believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him. There is no verse in the word of God that you can take any hope that you are such a thing as an unconverted elect. If God has had his unconverted elect, and we will deal with that when we come to that place, then they are listed and defined and carefully limited in the word of God because the entire testimony of Scripture, especially of the New Testament, is... That Jesus Christ is coming in flaming fire with his mighty angels to wreak vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. So if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a new creature, like verse 17, because you came up out of the waters of baptism and I want a new, I want to live a new life for the Savior that has loved me and given himself for me, You are saved. You were elected. You were justified. 
You have been regenerated, and you shall certainly be glorified. No one gets out of that holy golden chain of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Being justified freely by his grace. Free! When it says being justified freely, does God in heaven expect us in respectful appreciation to put a sense on that word freely? Because it was exceedingly costly. But he means it's free to us. Expensive to him. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Rich people don't like being poor, and you certainly, you certainly shouldn't fault them. Why would they want to be? The God of heaven was rich, and he became poor, that we who were poor might be made rich. The transaction price of redeeming us from our sins and giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ according to 1 Peter chapter 1 is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of his own son. When you read in the annals of of biblical history or when you read in the annals of human history and you read about one general or king taking the sons of his opposing king that he has defeated in battle, and killing his sons before his eyes, that is the cruelest thing that can possibly... There's, there's some other things that they add to that that involve the daughters and the wife. That's the cruelest thing that can be done to the male heir to his throne to know that his seed is being cut off by this opposing king. Our God sent his son by his own choice for his enemies. It was not out of his power. It was within his power to have preserved his son, and it was within his son's power to say, I won't do it. But his son willingly laid down his life for us. This is our doctrine of salvation. Being justified freely by his grace. The grace of God. Let me deal again momentarily with theological rationing. How does the Christian world define grace? Unmerited favor. Terrible definition. Wicked definition. Arrogant definition. Unmerited favor. We are not in a neutral or innocent condition before God. We are in a guilty, vile, filthy, wicked condition of enmity before God. Therefore, the definition must be demerited favor. It is favor not given to a neutral object, but favor given to a condemned object. Get our theology right. They're so trite 
with their stupid little definitions. Don't they know the condition of mankind? Romans 3, 10 through 18 does not describe someone unmeriting God's grace. It describes someone meriting God's condemnation and demeriting His grace. Because we have earned the opposite of grace. And if it's by grace, how much work is involved? How free is it? Does the Holy Spirit know the definition of grace and works in Greek, English, and every other language? Does He know that they're mutually exclusive by their definitions? That if you have any works in grace, then it is no more grace. And if you have any grace in works, then it is no more works. Does it say that in the Bible? Do you know where to go to find it? Give me a book. Romans, give me a chapter. Eleven, I'll give you a verse. Six. Very good. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. Work means there can't be any grace. Grace means there can't be any works. And so they are mutually exclusive. They don't mix at all. There is no synergistic plan of salvation. There is no sacramental plan of salvation. There is no Arminian cooperative plan of salvation. It is all of grace. And all things are of God. Who of God is made unto us. Jesus Christ is of God made unto us righteousness and wisdom, sanctification and redemption. It's all by the grace of God. Being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our God has chosen certain words, not because there is any sacramental value in the words, but in order to give you the fullest, broadest, deepest drawing, picture, word picture of His salvation by using various terms, which we call facets of salvation. A diamond has facets. It has little tiny surfaces that as you turn it, it twinkles and, and looks beautiful as you turn it and look at different aspects of that precious stone. Salvation is a precious stone and it has various facets. One is justification. Justification is a legal term for you to be thinking, God as judge, me as criminal. Great white throne, last day, God is judge, I'm the criminal. And he's going to justify me, meaning, that man is righteous. Through the death of my son, Jesus Christ. His sins have been fully paid for. His name is in the book of life. My son paid for every one of his sins and my son's perfect righteousness is on him. That is the declaration of righteousness in heaven, which is justification. You are to grasp it with a legal sense. A forensic sense is what justification is in the Bible for, so that you think of God as judge, you as criminal, and the gulf being covered by a substitute standing up in court who died for you. Then right here in the same verse we have the word redemption. Redemption is not a legal term. Redemption is an economic term. It's to buy back or ransom someone. If you read Exodus 21 very carefully last night, did you read that if 
your ox that was wont to gore pushed another man's servant and he died. That the owner of the ox, because he hadn't kept him in and hadn't taken due care and diligent precautions to preserve the lives of others due to his dangerous ox, had to die. However, he could redeem his soul. Listen, I could preach for weeks on Exodus 21 alone. That book, that little chapter, is so good at understanding the mind of God. You you won't find any rights of the criminals in that book. You're going to find the rights of the victim's family. The victim's family got to sit down and make this decision. That neighbor that we warned three times about his stinking ox, and he didn't keep him in, and he killed Billy Joe, what do we want to do to him? Do we want to stone him tomorrow morning? Or do we want a million in cool cash? Do you know who got to pick the sum? The victim's family. Do you know that the owner of the ox would be somewhat motivated to see if he could get a loan for that million of cool cash? He'd be somewhat motivated. Do you know why? Because he'd see the teenage boys collecting the rocks. <laughs> I love the Word of God. But why did I go there? That's, that's the second service. Why did I go there? He could redeem his soul. I want you to know what the word redemption means. It means paying a price to get out of trouble. It means buying back someone from trouble. And do you know what, who paid the price? And do you know what the price was? The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who paid the price? God gave up his son for us. And that's why it's called redemption in this verse. And we have a verse that says justified and redemption. It says grace. It says free. It says being, which makes it passive through the redemption. And it wraps it all up in the object, the subject, the end, the beginning, the alpha, the omega, the author, the finisher, the every bit of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified, declared righteous by Almighty God with Jesus Christ's righteousness upon filthy sinners, being justified freely by His grace. There can be no works involved because the definitions of the terms are mutually exclusive through the redemption bought back from the death that we deserve by a price that was paid for us so we would get a feeling of what value was expended on our behalf, not just the declaration of a judge, but what was the price of the transaction, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is our salvation. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? God has given a record of His Son. It's in these Scriptures. His record is true. We know Him that is true. And we are in His Son, even in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's given to us an understanding. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have the evidence that you are in this verse justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to the comfort of your souls and may you lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith. May we sing His praises. May we live His righteousness. May we be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. May we thank God every day. Do you know what the Bible says? We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. That's the, Lord, that's the Holy Spirit applying this work to our inner man and belief of the truth.
chosen to believe the truth. We've heard it. Look at where we're assembled today. Look at what we're hearing. Look at what we're looking at. Look at what it does to our hearts. Look what it does to our souls. It's all by the grace of God that He chose us to it. Lord, have mercy upon us. Teach us more about Your Son. Fill us with the knowledge of His love until we are filled with all the fullness of God. Fulfill that wonderful prayer of the Apostle for the Ephesian saints. Lest, when you send your son to examine this candlestick, you find us like he found Ephesus years later, having lost their first love.